Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Well, great to have you aboard. I'm not going to ask whether you enjoyed yesterday because the answer is pretty self-evident. Lee Mottishead alongside me, senior writer from the Racing Post. You couldn't count that as work, could you? No, it was an absolute joy, Nick. It was an absolute joy. Um, it was, I think because all week long we'd wondered, would it actually happen? Would we get this clash? We didn't believe really, No, I did think we? the cynics in us thought one of the two camps would get jittery and they would find a reason to pull out on Thursday morning. But or, they didn't. Or, or it would just be a one-sided well, exactly. affair. And, but it wasn't that, you know. They ran and, my God, you know, they really did run. It was, a, it was one hell of a race. Um, there was so much to see in that horse race, but also there was... There was so much to hear. You know, I, I adore Ascot. We all adore Ascot. Mm. But in the winter, when you're watching jump racing, it can sometimes feel like quite a soulless place because it's so big. The action takes place so far away from you as well on the jumps track there. But even going past the stands first time round, I was watching up on, on the roof and the noise as they went past the stands first time with people shouting, go on, Shishkin, go on, Energomen. Down the far side, down that run, downhill run to Swinley Bottom. As they were taking the fences, there were audible gasps and oohs and ahs, particularly when Shishkin pecked at that first ditch. And then up the home straight and from the final fence, the noise was, was wonderful. And as I was walking away, leaving the roof to go back through the boiler room and downstairs, I spoke to Stuart Alexander, who was a cameraman there for ITV and Sky yeah. Sports Racing. And he just looked at me with his big beaming smile and said, I've not seen anything like that or heard anything like that for a long time. It was a real feel-good moment. It was a fabulous day for jump racing. And as you say, the sort of two tribes entrenched through the week. Everybody had a view yeah. on which of these fantastic horses would, would come out on top. And easy to forget, these horses are only just out of their novice season. Well, that's right. And I think that's, that's another reason why this was and is so exciting. Because we went into that race not really knowing how good these two stars could be. And we still don't. There are still questions that are there to be answered. And you just sense that we could be at the start of a, a long and wonderfully absorbing, absorbing rivalry, rivalry. I made two sort of comparisons in my, in my piece in the post. Day. One was an obvious one of Desert Orchid and Panto Prince, because mm -hmm. that was the first running of the Clarence House chase, as it was then the Victor Chandler chase. And you had Shishkin taking the role of Desi and rallying from yeah. the final fence when he looked beaten. But I also thought there were the echoes going back to Millhouse and Arkell of two young star chasers, one from Britain, one from Ireland, both countries having huge hopes for their horses. And on their first meeting, the British side won. 
as was the case with Millhouse in the 1963 Hennessy. Now, we know how those two horses went on, and they had a wonderful rivalry. Let's just hope we get that again with Shishkin and an Ergerman. They stay safe, they stay healthy, and they stay running, because if they do, we're in for a treat for two, three, four seasons. Well, Nicky Henderson is uh, on the line now. Nicky, good morning. Morning, Nick. Morning, Dave. Morning, Nicky. What a, what a very special day yesterday. I mean, first and most important question is, is how has Shishkin come out of his race? Well, I'm the first to admit that I'm actually at uh, Leafy Lingfield uh, preparing for, for what's going to be a great day's racing again. And it's a wonderful weekend, actually, for British racing, this, for what Lingfield are doing as well on Friday and today, um, with sort of yesterday's card put in between the two. So it's a bit special. I'm at Lingfield, and, um, but I've spoken to the team at home, and he's come out great. He ate up. He's sound and he's well, and thank goodness all is well. It was a big battle, and he's entitled to be a bit tired this morning. But um, Charlie Morlock says he's, you know, he, he's come out great, and he's, he's, you know, bouncing and happy and all in one piece, which is obviously the most important thing. And as he says, you know, there's, there's years ahead, and obviously the first thing that comes to head is, you know, they are going to meet again because they're almost certain to meet again in March and who's to say when it's as close as that um, you know there's nothing in it um, so you know we've just got to sort of Willie and I have both got a job to do which is to get them there in in, in, in March and round two and that is going to be as exciting as round one was I suspect. In the lead up to the the race, Nicky, you must have been playing the the likely scenarios over and over in your own in your own head. Um, did what happen exactly replicate what you'd anticipated in terms of the way the race played out? I think we knew that, that the pace was going to take the shape, or was nearly certain to make the running. Although first flow, one would have imagined, you know, I mean. First of all, you'd say with the first row, that, I mean, they finished 18 lengths in front of last year's winner. So that says quite a bit for them. Um, there was bound to be, there was no, no question. Tactics weren't going to come into it. I mean, I think we knew what was going to happen. Uh, Nico and I both had to, you know, obviously we discussed it, but he knew exactly what he was going to do. And not surprisingly, he was just, just going to have to keep in his sights. Um, yeah, things didn't look great turning to the, it, into the straight going to the second last. But this horse is pretty tough, and he probably does stay this trip very, very well. Um, and, yeah, it, it, he, he'd got us at it then. But, you know, what would always do, he would come home. Um, and... I mean, there's only two things, Nick. I said, one was Paul said to him going down the hill, um, we're going too fast. And, well, there was no doubting they were going very, very quickly. I mean, it was furious. Um, and Paul had turned to him and, and they do chat going round. Um, he, said, he said, Paul said, we're going too quick. Um, and there's nothing they could do about it. Both horses were, you know, really at it. And... Um, but he also said that, yeah, he was sort of not exactly going to win two out. But he said, going to the last, he said, I thought I, uh, I, I, I knew I'd get it. Um, 
But the great thing was that it was a, a, a good race. So it hasn't sort of signed, sealed, and delivered the champion chase. That hasn't been demeaned at all. It's going to be even more exciting next time. There are some aspects of, of preparing horses for big races, Nicky, that I'm sure are, are massively anxiety-inducing. But I got the sense from you, particularly on Wednesday when we spoke at Newbury, that you were particularly enjoying the build-up to this. Why, why was that? I think because we knew we were coming in as well as we could be. Um, he was on... We'd had the prep race at Campton. His work was good. Nico was happy with him, and Jaden, who looks after him, was happy with him. I thought he looked fabulous. Um, his, I, I, it was well advertised that you know what he was weighing was good. I mean, I don't think we could have had him any better anyway, and we knew we had to be. Um, that, so that's the first part of the season done. Now the next bit is to we've got a bit of time, and that's why I wanted to come to Ascot, and we'd said we would, and when he said he would, and there was never any question of not doing so. Um, you know, and the game spirit would have been a, I have no doubt, would have been a marginally easier option. But the timing of this race was really good for Cheltenham. Um, it gives us time. It gives him time now to have a couple of weeks quiet, you know, fill up the batteries, and then we'll start our Cheltenham preparation. Um, if he comes into Cheltenham, as, I, I think... I think you're right in saying that. Yeah, I was happy because I knew there were there was uh, unless he wanted to go and jump left, um, which is something that horses do do at Ascot, and I think we've all seen it before when horses do go left-handed um, at Ascot when you really want to go right-handed. If he has a trait, it would be to go left, but he didn't really. Um, that was one one fear that he might go and do that, but. He, he didn't, um, although he is sort of a left. He, he might be better going left-handed, but I don't think it made that much difference. Um, so I just think we go on. Um, I, I was relaxed about it in a funny way because I just knew there was, there was we, we couldn't, if we got beaten, we were beaten by a better horse. Um, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't see if we could be any better than what we were yesterday. There was... That there wasn't a lot of improvement to come from it, that's for sure. Uh, and, and as far as um, you were saying, you, you give him a, a bit of an easy time now and then build him back for, for Cheltenham and you know, that, that left-handed, if there is a preference, that left-handed preference might, might fall in, in his favour. Um, from what you saw yesterday, Nicky, are you still confident that that's what can sometimes be a pure test of speed, that two miles on the old course at championship level rather than at novice level like last year? Do you, do you still think that would be as up his street as, say, a test like yesterday's was, where more of an emphasis is on, on getting home? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think he's proven it at Cheltenham, as you say, um, but albeit in it, against novices. Um, but it's good that, you know, experience-wise, they're about the same. Um, you know, and as Dee rightly said, well, you know, this could go on. There could be. Well, we want we want round three and four and five, don't we? Exactly. I mean, of course we do. I mean, and but you know as well as I do, keeping these horses, mm. these very good horses, at at sound and and in heart and limb and mind, 
is is a fickle is a fickle game, and that's why you know sometimes we can't run because things go wrong, and and that's why as you say, relax might have been the wrong word about it this week, but um, mm. you know we just knew that we were where we where we were was yeah. as good a place as we could possibly be. Um, he's been given a, a time form rating of, uh, I think, 181. Certainly one pound higher, is that right, Lee, isn't it, than, than Altior? Yeah, yeah. Uh, than Altior at his, his peak. What, how do you reflect on that? Um, I'm not, it's, it's difficult to say, really, because, you know, we know that they're never going to run in the handicap. Um, although I must say that I can't blame the people say, why don't you run them in handicaps? But you know, there are races for them that don't necessitate that. Um, obviously, he's not going to run again before Cheltenham. Mm. Um, and if after that he's up for either Aintree, the celebration chase at, at Sandown is a race we've always enjoyed with Sprinter and Altior um, or Punchestown, maybe I'd be stupid enough to go and take... Willie on 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 his on, on his home game, you know. I think there's I think there's a big appetite for that. <laughs> there might be, but whether I'm brave enough for that or not, I'm not sure. When you've got something like you know, we have a Grade One in England at the same time, so um, you know, I I agree that would be the ultimate clash to have a you know to have an away game. Um, but we'll have to think about that one in due mm. course. But. The main thing is just to, is that, yeah, as I say, the, the champion chase is, isn't. If one had won, if one of them had won by ten lengths. Yeah. You know, it would have rather. It, it would the champion chase might have become a rather damped down race. Well, that that uh, it certainly is not now. Now I think, courtesy of um, Katie at your stable, we've got some footage of Shishkin. This morning, so you probably can't see this, Nikki, because I know you're in um, in Lingfield uh, in your in your I'm hotel. But your weather course in preparation for a forty thousand pound bumper. Yeah, <laughs> well, this is this is shit. We're, we're looking at pictures of Shishkin this morning, and um, he he looks great as, as far as I can see. Just having a, a little walk around around Seven Barrows, so it's um it's lovely to see him. And and thanks to your, all your team for for providing us with the pictures. They've said he ate up, and he's actually he's already been out before the film. I think I don't think we'd have pulled out a lame horse. <laughs> so, um, no. I'm sure they wouldn't have done that. Um, so I do know that um, both Katie and Charlie Morlock, who's um, spoken to, to seen him out, and they say he, he ate everything, and he was happy and sound, and that's the most important thing when you've been in. Fights like that—it's mm. a bit like a, you know, it, it, it's not unlike a heavyweight boxer. Um, you can have bruises, but um, no, apparently he's in good shape. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's certainly how it looked. Nikki, I must ask you to reflect on John Bond yesterday in the in the Haydock race in the Rossington Main. Were you trying to teach him something yesterday by riding him slightly differently? Um, I don't think so. I did. Uh, I said to Aiden, you know, you, you're going to get pace. We knew there was pace in the race. So it was, um, you know, you could afford to hang on to him for a bit longer. Probably, you know, Haydock is a very, very different track to anything we've been on before. It's it's a lot sharper. Um, in some, you know, what you'd call typical Haydock ground, we knew it wasn't going to be very nice. 
um, and it was going to be, you know, it was going to be very tacky after frosts, and you know, Haydock would never dry out in the winter. Um, so it was a different test to what he's been doing before. Where I was pleased with him, they quickened up turning into the straight, and he quickened up with them. But then he quickened again after the last, and I think a horse that can quicken twice is a good horse. I mean, we know he's a good horse. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, he won going away, and I would be, you know, again, the timing was what we wanted. It, it gives us bags of time now to just settle down for a moment and and uh, and build up to Cheltenham. Um, and no, Aiden was very happy with him. Um, his jumping again was electrically good, and you know he quickened up like a very good horse at the end. And we were all very happy. Uh, and, and the fact that he didn't beat Mai Tai as far as Constitution Hill, is that too simplistic and reductive a way of looking at, at well, their relative merits? Because yeah. on my rather basic mathematics, when Constitution Hill be beat him, uh, we were getting £6. Right. Yesterday we were giving him £6 or something like that. So there was a £12 difference in what Constitution Hill beat as to what um, John Bond beat yesterday. On a, on a, sh on a much sharper track as well. On a much well. sharper track. So I don't think you can read a lot into that. Um, I still wouldn't want to hang my hat on, you know, we're just very lucky there are two very good horses. <laughs> In the meantime, Willie's got two very good horses. Yep. Um, so, you know, we've got to be on our A game with both of them um, because we're going to need them both, I suspect. Nicky, I will let you go. Thanks so much uh, and uh, best, uh, best of luck this afternoon and uh, well done yesterday again on what was a, a wonderful triumph. Well, it was a great day and well done, Ascot and everybody, because it was, a, you know, the race was a triumph in itself and it's all good for the game. Nicky, thanks a lot. Thanks, Nick. Uh, Nicky Henderson. I mean, in his 40-year career, I doubt there are too many days that that rank as highly as that one. No, I don't think there was. There could be. And I think that sense of being part of something that brought so much pleasure to so many people as well, I would imagine heightens the satisfaction um, that he got from it. We all love to see great horses strolling around racecourses, showing their, their class and you know, winning by huge margins because we know we're in the presence of greatness when you see that sort of thing. But, but mainly, we're, we're in it for competition. Yeah. We want to see the best horses taking on the best horses and having to dig deep uh, and really having to show what they can do. And that's what we got yesterday. And I thought what it emphasised too and the point that we keep making is that horses often don't lose anything in defeat. You know, Anurga Main. Well, his reputation was massively enhanced. Enhanced, wasn't it, in absolutely. Defeat. That horse has lost nothing in, in defeat. We, we think more of him now than we did before. Um, and I think we, we think he's a better horse than we did mm. before because they've, they've each shown how good they are, particularly through, through a very good horse back in third. Um, I think what, what's fascinating, too, in relation to, to Shishkin, Nick, is that, again, watching it last night on, on, on TV is. You just sense that he can be better again than he was yesterday. Um, I thought his jumping wasn't as good yeah. as an argument. A point that Willie Mullins made when he was analysing the race afterwards. As Nicky was saying, he was just 
occasionally jumping out to his left slightly. There was the peck down the hill. Um, whereas an ergamine seemed razor sharp all the way round. So you just wonder if, if Shishkin could actually raise things a notch at Cheltenham. <laughs> you're asking. Well, you're absolutely, asking a lot. yeah. I know, I know. But you, I, I, I still think there is more in Shishkin. I think there's probably more in Anergamine too. That's 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 what makes I, it so so incredibly exciting. I wonder what Nico de Boinville thinks. He's uh, he's on the line now. Morning, Nico. Morning, Nick. How are you? What a thrill! What a thrill for you yesterday and for for everybody watching. I'm, I mean, Lee's Lee's asking an awful lot of this horse. <laughs> can he can, can he raise the game again? He's asking. I don't know. I mean, what we saw yesterday was um, just two amazing horses going at it, and um, it was just fantastic for racing, wasn't it? Uh, it really, it really was fantastic for racing. I mean, Nicky's already reported that you said to him that Paul Townend had said to you, "We're we're going too fast." I mean, what are you thinking at that point? Well, that was after I was actually after the race. We had it oh, right. afterwards. Um, uh, but yeah, we we really did fly down that hill, um, and Shishkin's slight peck on landing was was more because of the speed we were going um, and he just seemed to come alive under me just a stride or so before that fence and um, it was just a case of quieting him down again and just getting him to relax again. So it was almost, almost a sort of speed wobble almost. Yeah, that kind of thing and, and luckily I didn't wobble off. And when, when that happened, did, did, did that sort of trigger something in your mind to start sort of approaching the rest of the race a little bit differently? What, what do you think would have happened had he not done that? Um, no, it was just a, a, a minor blip, you know, from from a, my perspective. It was just like, oh, that's happened, and then you move on to the next thing. Um, it certainly didn't change how I approached anything, or, it, you know, it, was, it happened so fast, it was just so in the moment that, um, as I said, it was just on to the next moment. I mean, to, to, to watch the race, for sort of seven-eighths of it, it looked as though Enegumen was completely in his comfort zone, and you were just slightly on the, on the back foot. Is that how it felt to you or, or not? To a degree, yes. Um, I was just trying to keep tabs on him as well. And we obviously had first flow in our sights as well, who was trying to get a run at things. Um, so it was, it was just interesting tactically as well. And at, at what point, Nico, did you, did you sort of feel good about the outcome? At what point did you think, yeah, I've, I, I'm, I'm still here, I've got, I've got the upper hand? Well, if, if I'm being honest, turning in, I thought we were cooked. And I was, what was going through my head was, do you know what? This has been a fantastic race and both horses have acquitted themselves well. And it was just amazing and to be a part of it. Um, and then it, was, it wasn't until he started to pick up and respond and, you know, finish off that flat spot and then really started to get running. Um, and going to the last, I was definitely thinking the game is back on here. It, it's almost spooky how Altior-esque it, his running style seems. Um, that, that must have struck you. I mean, is it, is, are they the same to ride in that respect? Uh, I, I think the Altior in his, later, in his later stage of life was, was similar to that. Um, they, those flat spots, they just seem to hit, and then they, they seem to find that extra bit of turbo, I suppose. But he's got that finish, and he always seems to have that finish. We saw it in the Supreme Novices Hurdle last year. In terms of, of how well each of these horses from yesterday might be suited to the demands of the, of the champion chase, but do you subscribe to the received wisdom that it's going to suit you better than Enegumen or not? 
I don't know. Inogamen was, was fantastic yesterday. He never missed a beat. Um, we've got form around Cheltenham. We've been there and done it before. So I'm certainly not worried. And I'm, I'm looking forward to, to round two. And fingers crossed both of them um, get there. And I mean, you've ridden great horses in great races. You, you know, you've won gold cups and champion chases on some of the most popular horses in training who receive receptions that raise the roof at Cheltenham. Tell me why yesterday was different. I guess I, I've been involved in a few sort of big matchups and that have really sort of hit home and, and seem to have connected with the racing public. Um, you know, I, I think about Native River and Mike Bite, and I came second that day, but I, I still came away from that day thinking what a race and you know it was great that the crowd really sort of got behind both horses and and again it was this, a very very similar experience yesterday it was great to see you know the racing crowd really sort of connect with each other and connect with with that that race yesterday and it just gave everyone you know a, a lift i suppose Welcome back to the show. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the Luck on Sunday studio for the first time the self-styled trainer with a difference, a man who forged, no pun intended, a hugely successful career as a farrier before going on to hit the headlines uh, in even more emphatic fashion with success under both codes with a training licence. He is, of course, Gavin Cromwell en route to Lingfield with Darvastar, the former champion hurdle third and a very exciting novice hurdler. So thanks for stopping by, Gavin. Good morning, Nick. And is it a first visit to Lingfield for you this afternoon? It is, yeah, yeah. Looking forward to it. And, I mean, when did you sort of think, hmm, that could be quite an interesting departure? Because we saw a few Irish horses enter, but, but not that many. Yeah, um, look, with Darver Star, he's probably a little bit hard to place. Um, I was looking for conditions, races, and uh, stumbled across that race. And so here you are, just, are, just three of them, and it looks a lovely opportunity. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I suppose from the sponsors and the track, um, it's probably a little bit disappointing for them that there's only three runners, but... I think it'll be a, it will be a good race all the same. I mean, you are firmly established now as one of the most respected trainers in Ireland. As I say, under under both codes, you've had Royal Ascot winners, you've had Breeders' Cup runners, you've had a whole slew of Cheltenham Festival winners, a Champion Hurdle winner, a Stayers Hurdle winner. If I told you 15, 20 years ago that you'd be in this position now, what would you have said? If you told me that five or six years ago, I'd have told you you were mad. Um, yeah, look, going back a few years and not very long ago, I didn't actually, I would have never contemplated that I would be a full-time trainer. Um, it just evolved and um, thankfully so. Um, I now uh, work as, at my hobby and uh, enjoy it. So you're, you're working at what used to be your, your hobby when you were a full-time, full-time farrier. So were you marrying the two for, for a little while? Absolutely. Um, I used to ride out a few in the morning um, before I would go shoeing. And I suppose I was lucky enough from a small trainer point of view that I had the farrier job to um, basically fund the training and fund the, the, the building of the, of the yard and, and the gallops. Um, you know, I wasn't reliant, reliant on the actual training to do that. So... Um, you know, I got to improve the yard as I was from funding from the, shoe, the shoeing. And so when you, you trained as a farrier, did you train as a farrier right from the outset, right from, right from leaving school? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Somebody telling sorry. you to do decorations. <laughs> That's exactly what or, it is. It always, it always <laughs> yeah. is. Every week. Um, yeah. I, um, well, look, at I, went, I, I worked for, 
summer holidays, I went to Desi Hughes and I went on to Newmarket. Um, had a notions of being a jockey, uh, simply wasn't good enough. Um, and I thought a farrier would be, I could make a living at that and, and still be in the industry. And um, yeah, that's, I rode in a few pointy points um, as just for fun and uh, yeah, it evolved from there. How was uh, how was Desi Hughes to, to ride out for? Is that, so what were you did, really young, sort of teenage? Yeah, absolutely. Teenagers. I went there when I was fourteen for my summer holidays, and, and and again back the the following year. And I was I was going to leave school, and Desi, being the gent that he is, he told my dad uh, send him back to school. wasn't good enough to be a, to be a jockey. So, <laughs> you know, I think uh, a lot of trainers would have just, um, you know, it was another employee and 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 let them leave school. But that was the gent that Desi was. Um, so that's where that's what what got me started. And when I finished school, I went to went to Newmarket and worked there for a while. And went on to Australia and worked there and and uh, came back to start my apprenticeship as a farrier. So you you must have sort of been acquiring little bits and pieces from all these places. I mean, you can't start anywhere better than than Desi Hughes. Where did you work in Newmarket? Um, ben Hambry, the first year I went, and um, Paul T- Paul Callaway then, um, and then I went on to Australia and I worked for I worked with Flemington Racetrack. Um, a fellow called Johnny Marr, who's since retired, um, and then I came back to start my apprenticeship. There aren't many people who, who now come on the show who've who've worked under Paul Kellaway, who had a, a pretty formidable and fearsome reputation. Was he as hard a taskmaster as his reputation suggests? Um, yeah, uh, at the time, <laughs> at the time um, in Newmarket, there, there, there actually wasn't very many jobs going in Newmarket. It would, um, there, it, was in a bit of a lull, and um, it was the only place I could get a job. And I think that was because he was so tough. But <laughs> no, <laughs> nobody else wanted to work there. Nobody else wanted to work there. But uh, look at it, it was fine. <laughs> How long did you last? I was there for about um, nine months, I think. That's, and then I that's, went to not, that's not bad going. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know I got on fine with him. Uh, did you? I mean, did you feel in all this time that that you were actually learning? Um, well, it, like it, I never really had it in my head that I was going to go training anyway. But mm. um, look, every day is a school day, isn't it? Um, so, I think I learned more when I was a farrier than I did while I worked in racing. Interesting. Um, you know, going around different yards. Um, you know, I, I shod for Pat Martin was the first trainer I shod for. Um, I shod for him for twenty odd years, and um, he's a small trainer, but a very clever man, and, and uh, always picked up. I picked up plenty. Um, and then, of course, Gordon Elliott has shot for Gordon up until a couple of years ago. Um, and sure, I don't need to tell you the story there. Um, so you definitely learn a lot going into different places and picking up what you want to, you know, I mean, not everybody, they don't, not, they don't do everything right, but yeah. if you can pick up a little bit everywhere. And you have that such close physical working relationship with the horse as well. You, does that help you understand them a little better? Yeah, definitely. Um, you, while you're shoeing, um, you do learn an awful lot about the the mentality of horses, apart from the physical, the mm-hmm. soundness part of it. Um, you know, you really do. You, you're you're with them constantly, and and you do get to appreciate that they're a herd animal, and um, you get in their mind a little bit. And and presumably, technically, it's quite. It's quite a challenging job, quite a demanding job. I know physically it's a it's a demanding job, but there is no margin for error, is there? Especially when you are shoeing a you know an, either an Olympic eventer or a, a horse that's about to run in a in a derby. It's a, it's a quite high pressure. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I've, I was, you know, I, I've shot a, a couple of Grand National winners and Gold Cup winner, and I've um, shot Keen O'Connor's horse that won the gold medal at the Olympics and subsequently lost it again. Um, yeah, but I suppose when you're, you get used to doing all of that. It's 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 fine. Um, I enjoyed it all the time I was doing it, um, but it was very hard work, and um, I'm not sorry to be to be finished it. <laughs> um, but it was very good to me. Um, you talk about your relationship with with Gordon Elliott and working working for him. He only started with a license, what 2004 or five, something like that, as a very as a very young guy. Was it obvious to you fairly early on that that he was just a little out of the ordinary? Absolutely, yeah. He started training point of pointers first, and uh, you know he hit the ground running straight away. Um, he was a very good amateur rider himself, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, he was a worker. And uh, um, I, look, I don't think anybody would have foreseen that that he he went as far as he did, as quick as he did. But um, look, he's, he's done a fantastic job. So, what do you think characterizes him? What has made him as successful as he has become from pretty um, much nothing? Very good horseman, very good, um, obviously very clever, and a very good delegator. Um, always seems to have everybody um, in the right places and doing the right things. That's interesting. So, able, confident enough in his team to devolve a certain amount of responsibility. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it's easier said than done. In a moment, I'm going to be talking to John Whittingdale, the former Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, who subsequently, as a minister in that department, had the uh, gambling review as part of his brief. He no longer does, yet he gave a keynote speech to the Betting and Gaming uh, Council earlier this week. Uh, First, however, I can talk to the uh, Chief Executive of Flutter UK and Ireland, Conor Grant, who joins me uh, now from his home. Conor, good morning. Good morning, Nick. Thank you for inviting me on the show. Uh, not at all. Thanks for thanks for coming on. As we reach, we think the publication of the white paper and the idea that we'll have have some clue as to how government are going to formulate their policy on this. How concerned do you believe the horse racing industry specifically should be? Look, if, if you listen to uh, what Lee said, there, I think there is um, lots at stake and there is genuine concern and I think the horse racing sector it should be it should be a concern but I think we have to step back from this and we have to get a sense of, of balance and perspective on it all the gambling act review and and the affordability assessments that are included as part of that they, they offer us a unique uh, once in a lifetime opportunity to create a regulatory framework uh, that's fit for the digital age and I think you know, listen to a lot of the points that were made. You know, we as an industry, I think we welcome the review, and there's a misconception out there that we don't. We need, we do need to raise the standards. Uh, we do need to increase uh, player protection. Uh, and you know, from our perspective, I think what the most important thing is uh, overall in the review that that it's evidence based. This is critical. We really have to avoid cosmetic gestures or political gestures playing to you know some of the audiences that. That, that Lee alluded to that are anti-gambling in, in, in many respects. And, that, and they don't really segregate horse racing from other forms of betting or gaming for that sector. That, 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 from that perspective, they look at the gambling sectors in its entirety. And, you know, we, we are working with government. We've submitted our evidence as part of the Gambling Act review, as has horse racing. 
And I think we've got very legitimate case to make that, you know, this is an industry, horse racing, that provides lots of employment uh, up and down the country. It's the second biggest spectator sport in the country. So it's really important that we, we avoid cosmetic gestures in this review, that there's blanket measures imposed and some of the more draconian uh, legislation. What's really important is here that we minimise harm. That, that's, that's the key. And, and the second part of that is we also have to recognise that millions and millions of people enjoy gambling safely. So the government have a very fine line to, bal- to balance here. And I think that is the very tricky part uh, for both ourselves as bookmaking industry and for horse racing. But there's no doubt some of the concerns that have been raised are very legitimate. They are a risk. But we really do hope and call on government to adopt an evidence-based approach and avoid cosmetic or political gestures that are there for grandstanding, but don't really deal with the core issue of minimising the harm and then also protecting the freedoms of the millions of people who enjoy gambling safely. So what is the best way of minimising harm, in your opinion? How do you do that effectively and safely whilst not um, depriving people of their chance to enjoy their their leisure pursuit? I think there's a number of ways uh, that we can do that. And, and, you know, uh, listening to Lee talking about affordability, I think affordability is important. Uh, I do think it's important that we do more to minimise harm. Uh, Our industry and our sector hasn't always put its best foot forward. And that's why the left and right of the political spectrum and both in media, the different uh, publications, they're uniting because there has been one too many difficult stories in the media. And I think it's really important that we do adopt affordability measures. And in Flutter, you know, we're not waiting for the Gambling Act review, as many of our our competitors are in the sector. And we've pushed ahead and we've introduced uh, our own triple step affordability. And there's three stages to that. And this is just one of the measures. We've also introduced uh, limits to under 25s of £500 a month. That'll be rolled out next in the, in the next two months. And, and we've also trial and stake limits on, on some of our products like slots. In terms of the affordability and the triple step, there's three key measures of that. The first one is we are looking for financial red flags at much earlier stages in the customer life cycle. And that's looking for potential bankruptcies or CCJs. And I think the county court judgments, and I think this is really important that we do step in at that early point. This is non-intrusive to the customer. And I think it's an important point. The second part of our triple step is that we use our safer gambling tools in conjunction with affordability and our real-time monitoring and our data algorithms that we have that we use to identify problematic behavior. And if we do see this, we step in. And again, this is an important measure. And the final part of our affordability is a backstop. Now, for us, the key point in all of this is these can't, we, we can't have blanket, blunt measures ap- uh, approach here. It won't work. We know that with affordability and with, pro- with gambling disorder, it's very individual and neural-based. And we need to take a risk-based approach. And that's what we're calling for, that this is a risk-based approach. We think that's... This is really important and it's at the heart of what we're doing here. Uh, and I think it's really important that we don't do the, the £100 limit that was, was muted at one point because that will have massive unintended consequences, not just for racing. 
Sorry, Connor, I was going to say, can, can, I, I, can you really use your, your algorithms to identify problematic gambling patterns? As you, as you rightly identified, this is very individual to each person. One person's gambling addiction isn't quite necessarily the same as another person's. They may choose to gamble or game on, on different sports or pursuits. Their, their habits may be somewhat different from one another. We, look, there's obviously an individual element to all of this, but a hundred percent we can use our data this is the fundamental difference between retail betting and online in online betting we do have lots of customer data and it's incumbent on us to use this data to identify problematic behavior and and we're doing that um, and i think many of our competitors across the sector are doing that as well and in, in, across our flutter brands we've got our own safer gambling uh, algorithms we have 276 different metrics that are used in the algorithm to identify. They range from things like time on site, different staking behaviors, different betting products and, and gaming products that customers use. There's a whole range of products to assess that individual. And what we can do is we can, we can intervene in real time when we see this. And we are intervening, and this is really important. 120,000 accounts on average we automatically engage with every month to either recommend that they use safer gambling tools or we take away marketing from. And then we, what we do is we drill that down further in a month to, we, we manually review 28,000 accounts. And of that 28,000, 7,000 accounts, we will have an individual conversation with a customer on a monthly basis. And that may range from, look, we would like to ask you to put deposit limit on your account, which is a great way of controlling and, and helping people to keep on top of their spend, to more enforced measures, or we, we impose much lower limits. And I think what's really important here is, and go back to the point, the sector hasn't always put its best foot forward. But we've made massive strides over the last two years of really engaging with the customers and focusing on the key issue here, which is minimising harm. And we can do it, Nick, and we are doing it. And I think that's a really important point. OK, so you're going to try and persuade government that, that you can, you can self-regulate, the gambling industry can self-regulate. How do you think you're getting on? How are you reading the mood music at the moment, Connor? This is an extraordinary period politically. How do you respond to, to Lee's notion that the government will be looking for, for quick wins, for some low-hanging fruit to try and appease the, the readers of the Daily Mail, to shore up Boris's position? Before I answer your question, I just want to make a really important point. We're not trying to self-regulate. We are not averse to regulation. We have publicly called uh, for the Gambling Act review, both in the United Kingdom and in Ireland. We think these are really important legislative pieces of work that must happen so we can have a framework that is fit for the digital age. That's the first thing. This, this is the, the initiatives that we're putting through is recognition that we have to do better. We need to improve standards. I think it's, it's really important that we minimise, continue to minimise harm for our customers. And this is at the heart of what we're trying to do here. Lessons have been learned from the past, and particularly the, the FOB tease was, was referenced earlier. We recognise that we have to do more. We have to put the consumer first in terms of protection, and we are doing that. In terms of government, and, and it's in terms of you know, reading the room or the mood music at the moment, it's difficult. There's obviously been a change in minister. Uh, Mr Whittingdale is, is joining uh, the show later on, you know, in September, we thought that he was leading the review and then there was a change in minister and it's, it's obviously had a consequence that it slowed the process down. I think government are keen to strike a balance 
And I think it's it's very, very important to recognise what the gambling sector generates for the UK economy. There's over 120,000 people employed by our sector. It generates over four billion in taxes. My own organisation, Flutter, contributed 570 million in tax last year. The government has a really fine line uh, to balance here for in, 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 as they approach the Gambling Act review. They have to focus on minimising harm, but they also have to protect the freedoms of, of the vast majority of customers who safely enjoy gambling. That's a really important point. I think government recognises also that excessive or draconian legislation will result in people going to either the unregulated market or going offshore, where they know that the operators uh, do not employ the same standards as those that are licensed in the UK. I think they've got a difficult challenge here. And you know we, we know uh, that there is a very strong anti-gambling lobby that's out there. But equally, I think they recognise that our sector and our industry has made fantastic progress and strides over the last couple of years. And I think that that is a really important point. And I think government acknowledges that. Uh, Connor, thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. Connor Grant, the Chief Executive of Flutter UK and Ireland. Um, pleased to welcome John Whittingdale, MP. Oh, I haven't got John on the line yet, but we will, we will come to John in a few moments. I mean, Connor is full steam ahead yep. with, that, with that very clear message to, to, to government. Um, how do you read what he, what he had to say there? Well, what he says there is, is very positive and constructive. I think he recognises that there is a need for more regulation and there is a need for a review. It's just a case of how the government looks at the evidence that it's presented with in the review and then acts on it. I think he is correct in saying there is a lot more that can be done um, to help those who have gambling issues, who have gambling addictions, gambling problems. And in saying that we have fears for the rating industry and any potential knock-on effects from, from what might come out of this review and the white paper, we're not trying to uh, lessen or diminish um, the, the, the problems, the crises, the tragedies that impact some people as a result of, of gambling. It's just a case that what the, what the government does when it presents its right paper and then puts through the legislation needs to, on the one hand, actually have a meaningful impact on those people with problems. Token gestures won't help them, won't help anybody. Um, they need to come up with the, the right solutions based on evidence and not simply based on what they feel will will sell well to their own constituencies. I made the point in my in my column that goes live later on that I I do have some fears that as part of this government's mm. attempt to 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 keep hold of Boris Johnson as part of Operation Red Meat, you know, we're hearing all these we look at all these things like you know trying to scrap the BBC licence fee, um, you know bringing the the, the navy um, to the channel to, to sort out the boat situation there. They're, they're they're looking it seems to me for easy prey and ways of of satisfying their own backbenchers, uh, the Daily Mail and their wider constituency. I fear that the government might well look at this gambling white paper and think, well, listen, if we look like we're really bashing gambling, that's going to be a big win for a lot of our supporters. And I, with the best will in the world, when it comes to balancing principle 
and cynical pragmatism, I would not necessarily be convinced that Downing Street would always go down the path of principle. Uh, well, perhaps the man to, to answer that question is, is John Whittingdale, right, Donald John Whittingdale MP, the former Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, and has had uh, the gambling review as part of a, a ministerial brief. That's been passed now to uh, Chris Philp, uh, MP. But John Whittingdale gave the, the keynote address to the Betting and Gaming Council earlier uh, this week on this subject and joins me now. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, and, John, I, I think you're, you're well-placed to, to answer Lee's question as to how the current political situation and, and difficulties for, for the Prime Minister and Operation Red Meat might impact on the, on the timeline here and, and whether, whether we might see the publication of the White Paper fairly soon and, and the content of it. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think there are two separate questions there. Um, in terms of the political... Um, impact of further restrictions. I mean, there, I think there is very widespread agreement that greater protection is needed. I would I would agree with that too. Um, I don't think that's in doubt. But the extent to which it is seen as a, a, a really harsh crackdown on gambling, um, I think is a matter of much greater controversy. I don't think that necessarily it would prove to be universally popular on the Conservative benches. There are a lot of Conservative MPs who recognise that gambling is an activity which millions of people enjoy without any harm, and also that it supports an awful lot of jobs. And that, that's particularly the case, actually, amongst our, the new MPs from the northern constituencies, which are have not traditionally been Conservative. So I, I don't think necessarily that cracking down on gambling is going to um, proved universally popular on, on, on the Tory benches. Um, in terms of the timing, um, when I was looking at it as Minister Responsible, we were going through the responses to the consultation. We had something like 16,000. That takes quite a long time. And then you had a change of minister who hadn't had any previous experience of the industry and so has had to spend quite a lot of time going around talking to all the different stakeholders and coming up to speed. I know he's been doing that, but that too is going to add to delay. So I think the latest, I would guess, is that we will see a white paper probably before Easter, but not for another few weeks. Uh, there is a perception, rightly or wrongly, that you in your position as the minister responsible for um, for looking at the uh, the gambling review were were more well disposed to the to the gambling industry than than your successor Chris Philp. Is that a reasonable perception or not? No, I don't think it is. Um, I mean, it is certainly correct that you know I, I recognise that for most people, gambling is a leisure pursuit. It brings them a lot of pleasure, um, and it doesn't represent a, a danger to them. And I wouldn't want to curtail that freedom that they currently have. Um, there are people who are at risk, they are potentially or are actually addicts, and they do need protection. Um, and that's always been uh, my view, and it is the view of the government, I think. So I was, I was absolutely um, of a mind that greater protection was needed, but I don't want to see gambling as a whole um, punished if you like. Now, where Chris Phillips stands, um, I mean, Chris has not really said very much yet. And as I say, he hasn't had previous uh, experience in this brief. So I think it's, it's largely speculative. But I mean, I know Chris, he's a, he's a clever, um, hardworking minister. I think he will 
proceed on the balance of evidence. And as your previous guest said, that in a, a way is the most important thing, that any additional measures that are imposed need, need to be introduced on the basis of the evidence, not just prejudice against gambling or, or universal support for gambling. Just how much of an appetite do you think there is in the Commons and the Lords for really swinging measures uh, here? Um, I'm talking specifically about um, restrictions on on bookmaker advertising, particularly TV advertising, something that could really undermine uh, horse racing's finances in the most grave possible fashion. Well, in both houses, the Commons and the Lords, there are members who are very hostile to gambling um, because they do see it as dangerous um, and and creating great distress in society. Um, And they want much tougher measures, but they're balanced generally by those others who see gambling as as a perfectly legitimate activity, which people can choose whether or not to enjoy. Um, But there is political pressure from, from those who are much more opposed to it. Um, and you know, that is something which will need to be taken into account. But you're also right. For instance, when we talk about advertising, not only um, is it extremely important for uh, racing and other sports, um, I mean, the, the gambling industry sponsors a large number of football teams, for instance, um, who would struggle in the lower leagues if it was removed. And on top of that, I was minister for the media, and I'm very conscious that um, the broadcasters are under a lot of pressure at the moment as well, particularly uh, in the commercial sector, and that gambling advertising represents a considerable income to them as well. And they would also be hit very hard if gambling advertising were to be removed. Um, therefore, I mean, is, are we right to say to, to our industry, to the racing industry, you can't be complacent here? I mean, I, I, I was saying to Lee earlier, I think there's a perception that because um, advertise, bookmaker advertising on racing was essentially ring-fenced and you can, you can advertise during the afternoon during a racing programme. We were sort of working on the basis that, well, that'll always be ring-fenced. I mean, what's your, what's your view on that? Well, um, there are those who want to remove all gambling advertising. Um, there is already quite strict controls. Obviously, um, it can't be directed to children. It can't appear before nine o'clock unless it is uh, at the time of um, a live sport event like racing. Um, and you know, 20% of the content has to have messages about safer gambling. Um, so there, there, there are a number of measures in place already, but you're absolutely right that for racing, for instance, um, advertising is an important contributor, and obviously ITV, who carry racing, um, it, they would be much less keen to do so if they couldn't um, air any advertising from gambling firms um, whilst they were doing so. John, what would happen if um, the Prime Minister resigned next week, which is entirely possible, if, there is a, if there's a change of, um, of leadership anytime soon in the, in the Conservative Party, what's going to be the timeline then? Well, who knows? And that's hugely speculative. I hope the Prime Minister will not resign. But actually, one of the things I pointed out when I was talking to the BGC last week was I was Secretary of State in 2015-16, Um, Since then, we've had another six secretaries of state. We've had um, a rapid turnover as well of ministers responsible for gambling. And every time you get a change of minister, that sets you back because the minister, understandably, wants to get fully up to speed, wants to read into the brief, wants to get around and talk to the various 
people involved in it. And all of that takes time. So, you know, I, I, I think it was one of the reasons why we weren't able to bring out the white paper before Christmas, which was the original hope. And now it's been set back to Easter. I mean, if there were further changes in ministers, for whatever reason, um, I think that would delay it further. And is there likely to be a significant difference in policy if, say, Rishi Sunak is in number 10? Um, I, I mean, it, this is one of these issues which, you know, people's attitudes to gambling do not divide on party lines. There are very, very strong supporters of gambling in the Conservative benches. Yeah. But equally, there are one or two very vocal critics. Same goes for the other side of the chamber on the Labour side. So I don't know. I mean, Rishi, I don't know what his attitude to gambling is. Um, I do know that as Chancellor of the Exchequer, he will be very conscious of the contribution that gambling makes to his tax revenue, which is another um, important um, issue associated with this. But um, I, you know, I, I have no idea what other people's views are unless they have previously had some involvement. It's a slight tangent, but I am slightly fascinated by this this notion of the the turn the ministerial turnover and the turnover in cabinet delaying a pretty important and crucial legislation like this. When you get removed of a ministerial role like that, I mean, are you, are you left just banging your head against the wall thinking, well, this will just never get done? Um, no, but I mean, you recognise that it is you know, inevitably going to lead to delays. I was extremely unusual as minister because <laughs> I have spent almost my whole political career um, in the DCMS field. I was Shadow Secretary of State at the time of the 2005 Gambling Act. I chaired the select committee for culture, media and sport for 10 years, and then I became Secretary of State. So I, 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 in a sense, when I arrived, I already had quite a good background knowledge of the issues around DCMS, but that is highly unusual. Most ministers come into a government department having not previously been there and quite often having come from a totally different department. And of course, it's going to take time for them to come up speed. Um, the, we do have um, extremely capable officials who will help but at the end of the day, it is the minister who has to take responsibility and will want to be confident that, you know, they have properly um, looked at all the issues. I mean, when it comes down to it, if you were to try now to anticipate what is going to appear in, say, six or eight weeks time, um, what would you say to me? Well, um, I mean, I, I have no knowledge because we hadn't reached that point when I was um, holding the brief. I do recognise that particularly you know, the, the gambling landscape has changed so much since the passage of the original legislation, particularly with the growth of online gambling. Um, and therefore, I suspect that a lot of the attention will be on trying to increase the protections on uh, online remote gambling. Now, the operators have already brought in quite a lot of uh, protections themselves in terms of intervention, where there have been triggers to show that somebody might be behaving in a way which looks as if they are at risk of problem gambling. But I think there will be a, a, a legislative requirement to, uh, on the firms, in perhaps in the area of, for instance, stake limits um, or caps on how much one can lose over a period of time. I mean, these are things which some of the operators are already doing. But, um, you know, we, we brought down very significantly the state limit on the fixed odds betting terminals, B2 machines in, in um, betting shops and elsewhere. That was a few years ago now. There are those who say that 
you should have roughly equivalent controls online as you have offline. But that's just one of the things which which is under consideration. But you know, I would expect to see some movement there. Welcome back. My final guest today on the show is a man who very sadly has had to call time on his riding career this week, having suffered a really nasty fall in the jumper's bumper at Lingfield about a, a year ago. But the world is his oyster, so knowledgeable is he about so many aspects of the game. And already the man who used him so extensively in his riding career is putting his talents to alternative uses. And he was a, a big part of the, the Seven Barrows team who will have been celebrating Shishkin's fantastic success yesterday. He's multiple Cheltenham Festival winning rider, Jerry McGrath. Uh, Jerry, thanks for coming back on the show. Uh, on what's been a, must have been a pretty difficult week for you, it's sort of... A, accepting and then B, telling everybody that, that, that the riding career was going to be no longer. Yeah, thanks for having me, Nick. Yeah, it's been, a, it's been a kind of an emotional roller coaster of a week, really. Um, I suppose kind of a good six weeks before Christmas, I knew progress had stopped with the shoulder. Like the, the hip had actually healed relatively well. The shoulder just, I'd really hit a, a brick wall with the shoulder and the, the nerve damage that was there and stuff like that. And I actually, I'd stopped riding out even at that stage because the shoulder was that sore and things like that. And so I, I thought in my own head, I'd kind of come to terms with it a small bit. And I thought this week wouldn't be too hard, like mentally. But when, like it was, it came out Monday morning, Monday afternoon, and once the phone started ringing and people were calling, and it was all good wishes and all positive, but yeah, it hit me like a, like a big, big brick. Because you'd already made up your mind that you were going to retire, you had no no option but to to stop riding in races. Yeah, like you know, I'd, I'd speak spoke with my surgeon and a few specialists, and you know, they they weren't happy to clear me. They wouldn't have cleared me. Um, and like I said, it's one of the, even if you had a miracle that you did get past the doctor somehow, they they couldn't stand by and um, you know say what would happen when you took a fall. And like I said, in this industry, being a jockey, it was only a matter of time. When that was going to happen, so yeah, like I said, it was kind of it was a tough decision, um, but I suppose the fact it's probably been forced on me has just made it a small bit easier, I think. But yeah, there's, there's no point dwelling on it. We just have to move on. Okay. And how are you sort of feeling in yourself now, physically? Are you are you okay? Yeah, yeah. Like, like I said, on a day-to-day basis, living a what you what some people would call a normal life, I suppose it's fine. But uh, just on a horse and stuff like that, it, it was very sore. So hopefully, at some stage. We might just get it um, to a level where I can ride out a bit and stuff like that, which which is obviously a, a big thing I want to want to bring forward um, with the guys riding work in Seven Barrows and also like with the bloodstock just sitting on horses, whether it be point pointers or flat horses and things like that. And in terms of your relationship with with Nicky Henderson, we heard from him extensively at the beginning of the program. How important has that been in sort of sustaining yourself uh, mentally, really? Yeah, I suppose it was tough. Um, I was very keen for Nicky and his wife Sophie to be the first people to hear the news of, my, like, of the decision. Uh, so I actually told them before Christmas because uh, I, I would have been devastated if they'd found out you know, uh, secondhand or anything like that. So I sat down and we had the conversation and obviously we were all kind of upset. And I, Well, I was very upset. It was, you know, it was hard work telling your boss that you weren't be, going to be able to ride for him again. And, um, and the first thing he said is that you know, we, we want you to stay a part of Seven Bowers, which is a big thing because it was a tough chat and just to have that you know someone had that bit of confidence in you to say that they weren't just kind of moving you on and saying thank you very much it was a tough tough conversation but you know there was plenty of positives to take from it uh, and I know whenever I whenever I speak to, to Sophie Henderson she's always been throughout your career you know, your biggest champion she's always saying you know make sure Jerry gets the credit he deserves as, as a, not only part of our team but a, a massively respected rider in that team 
Yeah, exactly. Soph, Sophie's brilliant. She's you know she's a good supporter of all of ours. She really pushes us and she looks after us when we were kind of uh, injured and things like that. You know, she's always the first person to ring up and check that we're okay. She's yeah, she's a brilliant person. How did yesterday feel? Yeah, I was lucky enough to be there, Nick. It was it was incredible. I suppose like at the moment I'm kind of adjusting to. Like I went there with my partner Charlotte, like, and I actually said to her, "You're going to actually kind of have to teach me what to do at the races from a like um, person going there, you know, just a general member of public to watch the racing because, like, in between races, usually you're in the weighing room, you're flying around the place, you're weighing in, you're weighing out. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I was just totally out of my depth there, and you know, I actually, believe it or not, it was the first time you actually walked around Ascot Racecourse and actually, you know, took in how good a racecourse is and the facilities there from the public point of view because, like I said, usually we get there, you go into the weighing room, you walk the track you go back to the weighing room, you ride, you go home. You know, it's very kind of simplistic that way. So it was very different. But yeah, the atmosphere yesterday was just incredible. I did pick up on Lee's point earlier about, like, I'd imagine sometimes in the middle of winter, Ascot, you know, looks very empty, really. It can look very empty. But yesterday, just the atmosphere, the buzz, you know, I was actually stood in the stand right, um, right beside the winning line. And the fact that Shishkin only hit the front, what, you know, 25, 30 yards before, it was just incredible. And the roar that just... You know, and, and it was interesting because when I stood there, there was as many people shouting for Nergamin as there was for Shishkin. It wasn't a very one-sided mm. affair. You know, it was just a brilliant day, I thought. You know, and, and we heard from Nico earlier on, and he was he was very frank. He said, "Turning for home, I thought I was cooked." Those were his words. Yeah. And I always think he's quite a cool character. And if we think the horse is cooked, he's probably got matters under control. But he said, "No, I thought I was done." Yeah. Did you think he was done? Yeah, I suppose I, I can see what he meant. What he meant, and like I think probably everyone agreed with him. But I suppose just at home when you see him, like his bits of work, he's not he's not a fast, flashy horse. He always does his best work at the end of a gallop. And like Nico knows the horse so well, he rides him in all his work at home. And um, but that was just he just had such a good prep and build up to the to the race yesterday. His schooling was brilliant on Thursday. His last bit of proper work last Saturday was incredible. And yeah, no, it was just brilliant at all. I mean, what would so what would a horse? like him do at Seven Barrows in, say, his final piece of work for a race like this? How, how far would he work over? What would he work with? How, what, would it, what would it look like, that last preparatory important piece of work? Yeah, so like, we've been very lucky now for the last kind of month, five weeks, we've been, been able to use the grass in Seven Barrows, the, the famous you know, Farringdon Road gallops, and it's been brilliant. Um, so he'd have done his last real proper bit on Saturday, last Saturday, a week ago. He'd have had a breeze on Tuesday just through the, you know, just to clear the, clear the pipes and stuff like that. But last Saturday would have been his last proper bit of work. A bit of fast work. And how far would you, would you work over on the Farringdon Road Gallop normally? Yeah, he, he, he probably went about nine, ten furlongs. As far as that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, definitely a good nine furlongs for mm. sure. And then, like, they gallop out over a furlong and a bit, you know, you just ease off, but you don't, you don't pull up straight away. And then you, you're quickening up through the... Through the work, yeah, oh yeah. They like said that they, they like you said it's one of those. Even though it's you're cl- you're climbing the whole way, it, it is you know you have to go a good gallop from the bottom to the top because you're on very good horses too. You're not on ninety five hundred rated horses, you know. That you're on those proper horses that needs need to go a good gallop from the bottom to the top. And I guess the skill of being a, a good trainer is knowing that you've got to have good enough riders to to make sure they get these bits of work right. Because if you get it wrong, that's it. Your your race can be can be done. Yeah, exactly. And I, I'm finding it very interesting at the moment because I, like I'm, at, I'm on the ground at the moment looking at these gallops. And like I said, a bit like being at Ascot today, it's kind of like the first time I've done that as well. Usually you're on the back of the horses working beside Shishkin or you know, in behind them or something like that. But yeah, I'm kind of looking at it from a different angle now. And yeah, it's fascinating. You know, you, can, you, know, you know what sort of lads are riding good bits of work and you know if lads are coming past you too quick on moderate horses or slower horses, they've gone too steady early. It's, it's fascinating. You know, it's a kind of a, it's a different dynamic for sure. 
And all this, which you clearly find very interesting, is this a precursor to one day taking out your own license and training horses? Uh, I can safely say no. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, I'm not. No, training. You never... strike me as a completely obvious candidate for it. No, training has never, never appealed to me whatsoever. Um, yeah, I suppose financially and stuff like that, it can be suicidal towards some people. But yeah, I just, I just don't. I, I don't see myself training in something that I, I've never really even contemplated too much. Is that because you wouldn't want to, to wear that much stress? Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, and I suppose you know yourself, it's, it's probably widely known that horses are probably the easiest part of the job. It's dealing with, you know, owners, trainers, or staff, just, you know, just that side as well. You know, training the actual horses in the morning is probably, you know, an easy part of it. Uh, but yeah, it's just whatever comes with it as well. It, it's, it's hard work, and, you know, it's something that... Uh, something that doesn't really uh, interest me too much. I know the bloodstock side of things floats your boat quite quite significantly, mm. and you've been kind of at that for a little while, haven't you? Yeah, the, I've just a massive passion for the bloodstock and just the, the sale side of things. And um, like I said, when I did get injured last last January, you know, the surgeons that, that did the operations of me, they were fairly, you know, they, they did say to me, there's a big chance you, you won't get back race riding. You know, the amount of metal work they put in and the screws and stuff like that. Um, and I suppose at the time, I didn't want to believe them. I kind of said, yeah, yeah, whatever, that's fine. Yeah, thank you very much kind of thing. I was probably a bit blunt. But um, yeah, so with that, and just in the back of my mind, small, but I suppose it, like I'm going to be off for a good six, seven, eight months, I suppose. So I'm going to have to utilize and, you know, use my time wisely. And I suppose I just used it kind of towards building a few more contacts with the, in the bloodstock world and bought a few more horses for people and a few trainers and um, yeah I suppose I was always kind of etching towards just in case I didn't get back you know. Mm. And so that might beget a significant opportunity you hope? Yeah exactly yeah like I said I've built up a few clients now already and things have gone well so I'm um, looking forward to the next chapter um, yeah onwards and upwards. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiworld Dubai.